0: Welcome to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. I'm Angie, and for this week's episode, we have Dr. Dion Benton. Dion is currently a visiting assistant professor at Swarthmore College. He directs the Causality, Mind, and Computational Modeling Lab. In this episode, he will be sharing with us his recent research on using a connectionist model to investigate infants' understanding of morality. If you liked today's episode, you can also check out Dion's own podcast called It's Innate. It's Innate is a podcast for people with interest in understanding how infants and children acquire knowledge. You can find more information about his work and his podcast in the description of this episode. Without further ado, here's our conversation. So thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Um, you so, are so so welcome. <laughs> so we will be starting with your most recent work on using computational modeling to understand socio-moral evaluation in preverbal infants. So yeah, let's we can
1: unpack uh, that title a bit. So
0: mm-hmm. uh, the full
1: title of the paper that we'll be discussing today is Moral Masters or Moral Apprentices. Uh, question mark, using computational modeling to understand socio-moral evaluation in preverbal infants. So the the crux of this paper, the point of this paper was to examine uh, whether a computational model can uh, account for the pattern of findings that have uh, uh, sort of appeared in various studies. So Kylie Hamlin is a renowned developmental psychologist um, who conducted some classic research examining uh, at what age infants can distinguish between uh, bad actors and good actors. That is, when can they engage in social moral evaluation, Uh, evaluating social behavior on the basis of whether or not it's moral. That's that's what we mean. That's what I mean when I say social moral evaluation. And so in the study that I have in mind, uh, the study was conducted by Kylie Hamlin, Paul Bloom, and uh, Karen Wynn. Uh, I may have the orders mixed up. I think it's Mm -hmm. actually Hamlin went in bloom Mm -hmm. 2007. In any case, the study used what was called the hill paradigm. So given that this is, I'm guessing an audio, uh, a podcast, I'll sort of have to describe to the best of my ability, the paradigm. So imagine uh, if you will, uh, a hill uh, on a screen uh, and imagine uh, a climber, which is in this case a simple shape with some eyes. And so, uh, in, the, in, on the, in this sort of study, on some events, the climber would try to make it to the top of the hill. But each time the climber tried to reach the top of the hill, it failed. And so, after a certain number of times, the climber was either helped or hindered. So, on some trials, a second character, let's say, let's call it a helper, would enter the stage and then assist the climber in reaching the top of the hill. This was called the helping event. Go figure. Uh, And in a second event called the hindering event, um, a second, sort of another character would enter the stage and then push the climber down the hill, thus preventing or hindering it from reaching the top. The question then was, well, what would happen if you gave infants as choices, the helper and the hinderer? would they reach for the helper? Would they reach for the hinderer or would they be at chance? And so what she finds in this study, as well as other studies, is that babies reliably reach for the helper over the hinderer. And this has been taken as evidence that babies can in fact uh, distinguish between good guys and bad guys and that they can do this quite early. So uh, in the study I just uh, finished describing, uh, the babies were as young as, I believe, three months of age. So they can do this three quite early. Old. Right. And and before, you know, some some may have sort of, some may ask the question whether or not this finding is robust. And so it's worth mentioning that this finding was also obtained in a study that used a slightly different paradigm. Mm-hmm. So in a, in another study by uh, Hamlin and Nguyen in 2011, they used what was called the box- paradigm, the box scenario. So in this setting, the protagonist was trying to obtain something from a box, but the lid of the box was just too heavy to lift up by Mm -hmm. the protagonist by himself. And so he, on some trials, was either helped, so another character would help the protagonist to lift the lid to retrieve whatever was in the box, Mm -hmm. or hindered. So uh, another character would just jump on top of the lid uh, and slam it shut. And again, the question is the same. If you give infants as choices, the helper and the hinderer—do they reliably do they reach reliably for the helper over the hinderer? And here too, babies do that. And so, on the basis of this fi- of these findings and similar findings, the argument has been made that babies possess what's called an innate moral core. And so, I'll stop there. Uh, but you asked me to unpack the title, and so the mm-hmm. title is actually based on some classic experiment, which uh, I'm actually a fan of. Um, mm-hmm
0: yeah, so I think it's very interesting that you mentioned that they use like two different paradigms to find this converging finding. So I wonder if it is worth to go a little bit deep into details about first in this three months old, what are the measurements they were using to show sure. that babies can understand this? Sure.
1: Yeah. So these studies rely on two kinds of measures of social and moral evaluation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use a choice measure. So babies are literally just given the helper and the hinder. These are puppets. And they're at, they're basically, uh, what the experimenter does is they uh, examine to which of the um, puppets the babies reach. Uh, But another measure that they use, and this is a measure that's common when you, uh, you know, when you do, when you conduct infant research, is they use a looking time measure, right? So the setup of the, of the looking time test events were slightly different. And so in the test events that that use the looking time as a measure, babies were shown events in which the climber approached either the helper or the hinderer. And the question, of course, is if babies can discriminate these two actors on the basis of their uh, um, moral behavior, then they should look longer when the climber approaches the hinderer, perhaps because they're surprised about why the climber would want to interact with something that hindered it, that acted antagonistically against it uh, during habituation. So the reason I didn't describe or didn't discuss this particular measure is because um, the findings are a bit more mixed when you consider just this particular measure. Mm -hmm. So unlike reaching the choice measure where babies always, almost always, with some exceptions, so uh, uh, Scarf has done some work, uh, showing some exceptions. Uh, Laura Schlingloff has done some recent work showing some exceptions. But by and large, babies reliably reach for the helper over the hinderer. Well, when you use looking time, babies show different patterns of looking. So in some studies, they'll look longer when the climber approaches the helper, and other studies they'll look longer when the climber approaches the hinderer. And so it's not clear what to make of these mixed findings. And so when I the reason I discussed the choice measure is because uh, again, this particular measure produced reliable results, that is consistent results that were replicated across studies, conditions, uh, and paradigms.
0: I see, I see. So it's almost like the looking time measurement compared to the choice is a more noisy measurement in this context? Absolutely. I Absolutely. See. So now moving on to your paper, which is using computation modeling. In this case, you are neither running um, choice measurement tasks nor like using looking time measurement. Right. So How do you build a computational modeling to unpack this phenomena?
1: So let's take a step back and and let me sort of motivate why I chose to build a computational model of these studies. So I mentioned that uh, these findings, that is that babies reliably reach for helpers over hinderers, has been interpreted to mean that babies possess an innate moral core. Well, why might this innate moral core be important? Well, it's because it provides, according to some, babies with three interrelated capacities. It allows them to uh, know when punitive action is justified, when punishment is justified. It allows them to show empathy for others. And importantly, and, and perhaps most relevantly to this discussion, it allows them to distinguish between good actors and bad actors. And again, this mechanism is supposed to be operational from birth. Well, what's the problem? Well, there's a couple of, I think, issues as I see it with this particular interpretation. Now, the, so let me be clear, the data are what the data are. Mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not questioning the data. We know for a fact that babies do reach for what we call the helper mm-hmm. and what we call the hinderer. The problem is that um, sort of extrapolating from this finding to argue that babies, that this is innate, is problematic. Why? Because these babies in the earliest cases are three months So they've had three months of experience to learn about those regularities and those sort of cues that distinguish helping events on the one hand from hindering events on the other. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so there has to be, I think, an alternative explanation for what's going on. And so, um, go ahead.
0: Yeah, so I guess I'm just kind of curious about when you say like three months of experience, which I imagine the first three months of the life, people are probably not doing a lot of things. So are you saying that even like whatever is happening in the three months are potentially like can can help them like learn the regularities? Because Absolutely. I feel like they're not given a lot of experience to, I don't well, know, experience well, the moral universe of human life.
1: <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So this act you're actually anticipating my argument. And so the crux of my argument, we'll just jump right into the crux of the argument. The argument I want to make and that I made in this paper is that actually those findings do not reflect sensitivity to uh, morality, per se, but rather they reflect uh, a sort of sensitivity to low level features. So let me unpack this just a little bit. So the reason I argue babies prefer the helper over the hinderer is because in these events, the helpers engage in consistent action. with the the climbers. Mm -hmm. That is, they're doing what the climber essentially is doing. So in the hill climbing scenario, they're both moving in the same direction. In the box opening scenario, they're both opening the box in the same direction, right? Whereas in the hindering event, the hinderer is opposing the action of the climber. And so the question is, how might this bias for the helper emerge? What is the mechanism? Well, I think that in the real world, uh, babies see, whenever they see an agent, in the paper that we're gonna be talking about today, an agent is just simply defined as something with eyes. But of course, um, you know what it means to be an agent is much more than having eyes. <laughs> yes. you know, being an agent means you know having goals and intentions and being able to engage in self-propelled motion among other things, right? But in the paper, I, con- I sort of um, conceptualize agent as something with eyes. So in the real world, whenever they see agents, those agents most often engage in consistent action with other agents. Very rarely is it the case that an agent, something with eyes, engages in an inconsistent or oppositional action with other agents. Well, this is going to be represented as an associative link, perhaps based on an associative mechanism. So you have the agent and its properties, eyes and whatever, and then you have the action, consistent action. So those two things are linked by an associative weight. Moreover, perhaps because agents have this propensity to want to facilitate the actions of other people so like i want you to achieve your goals essentially Mm -hmm. Uh, babies come to represent uh what they see in the real world is that agents also interact with Mm -hmm. other agents because perhaps because they're agents right Mm -hmm. we have this capacity to move we have this capacity to interact with others at a distance through contact there's very little constraint on our actions Mm -hmm. and perhaps because we are agents we have this propensity this desire to interact with other agents including, by the way, the infants themselves. Mm -hmm. And so here, the baby is seeing two kinds of associations, regularities, one involving agenthood and consistent action, and one involving agenthood and what I'm calling bidirectional interaction, sort of the agent interacting with other agents and infants and those things interacting with the baby. Well, of course, the question is, how might these, these associations that are based on this domain general associative mechanism Uh, manifest themselves? Well, I think they manifest themselves as expectations. So for example, the association between agents and consistent action Mm -hmm. leads to the expectation that if I see a new agent, something with the properties that agents typically have, I come to expect that that agent is going to engage in consistent action with other agents, Mm -hmm. right? Moreover, because I've seen agents interact with other agents, as well as myself, the infant, I also come to expect when I see a new agent that maybe at some point that agent is going to want to interact with me or other agents, right? And so it could be on this basis that babies preferred the helper. That is, they chose the helper. They chose the helper because they may have expected interaction. Yeah. And so here, notice that none of this has to do with sensitivity to morality. This is all based on these low-level perceptual features that are correlated via this domain general associative mechanism. And so now this explains why I use the particular formalism, modeling formalism I did. Mm -hmm. So I am a computational modeler, but that is a meaningless term because Mm -hmm. people use different models. Formalism I've adopted in my own research, and this goes back to my grad school career at Carnegie Mellon, is I built artificial neural networks. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, these computer systems fundamentally rely on associative learning principles. Mm -hmm. The learning in these systems is driven by the weights that connect the layers in these systems. These weights are associations, right? And so if my associative account that I outlined now is more or less right, then I should be able to show that an associative system, a system that relies on these associative principles can give rise to the uh, findings that Kylie Hamlin has attributed to an innate moral core. And so this is why I built a computational model. And so I'm not, I'll, I'll sort of stop there and let right. you ask any questions. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah,
0: I guess one thing that I'm very curious about is, I know you mentioned this phrase, domain general learning mechanism a lot. And this seems to be the crux of um, the whole kind of tension between whether one being domain general and domain specific. Yep. But I've been recently thinking a lot about this term domain So I'm wondering whether you can say more about what does it really mean for when we, like, development psychologists are talking about domain, because I feel like different people seem to have a slightly different conceptions on this term. Some people will talk about in terms of different domains of cognitive capacity, we say, like, working memory, attention, as if they are separate domains and other people will be talking about like domain as more of like a content related concept such as mathematical domains and sociomoral domains so i wonder when you talk about domain general what are the general uh, yep. what what are the domains that you are thinking yeah, of yeah
1: yeah sure 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 so when i use domain i'm referring i'm referring to domain in that second sense as content so babies have mechanisms that allow them to learn in particular structured domains. So mathematics would be a domain, uh, morality would be another domain, um, causality would be a, a still another domain. And so they have mechanisms that support learning in each of these domains. That would that's at, at its basic core is a domain general mechanism, a mechanism that operates. So some examples of a domain general mechanisms include habituation, association, associative learning, statistical learning, uh, imitation, conditioning. These are, these are mechanisms that support learning across content domains. That's what I mean by domain. Now, domain-specific mechanisms, of course, are just the opposite. These are mechanisms that are designed specifically to solve a specific problem. So um, uh, I'll give you an example. Um, you know, uh, Karen Nguyen has argued that babies have math mechanisms, Mm -hmm. mechanisms that allow them to engage in simple addition and subtraction. Well, clearly this mechanism doesn't, can't work uh, in learning about causality. It's a mechanism that's specifically sort of tailored to solve math related problems. So it's operating in the domain in the content area math. And so, again, when I use the term domain, I'm referring to um, uh, content areas. I should also mention here that you're absolutely right that uh, that developmental psychologists seem to have different meanings of domain. I might also argue that they also have different meanings of mechanism. (laughs) It's not always clear what one means by mechanism, right? And so Mm -hmm. uh, I have my own definition of mechanism. I think a mechanism is a system that takes input, transforms that input, and then produces an output, but a mechanism can also be conceived of as a kind of cause, right? Mm So intervention, I study causality. Uh, That's my primary area. We're not talking about causality today, but that is my primary area, and one thing we know is that if you allow kids to intervene on causal systems, that is, try different variables to see which ones make, make something happen, that intervention serves as a kind of mechanism that facilitates their causal reasoning, so it's a cause. Right. And so, again, uh, you know, you're absolutely spot on to point out that there is no clear definition of domain, just as there is no clear definition of what one means by mechanism. And in fact, I would encourage you to ask your advisor, what 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 does a mechanism mean? What when you say when he uses the term mechanism, which he does, you know, what does he mean by mechanism? Right. You know, so.
0: Yeah, that's a fascinating. Like, I feel like whenever the conversation goes into the definition of this kind of like heavily used term, we can. It's almost like always a good idea to kind of get on the philosophy of sign string, and but that feels like a slightly different conversations to be had.
1: Right. Well, then you start asking, are there necessary and sufficient conditions, and Wittgenstein, <laughs> this type of thing, right?
0: And, yeah. Exactly. You know, and if
1: there's no necessary and sufficient conditions, then can you, you know, so it, it's complicated for sure.
0: Nice. So yeah, let's return back to the paper itself. Yep. So I yep. know you just gave like a background on why you chose the specific of uh, formalism that you chose. So yep. what exactly did you find?
1: Right. So, well, before we do that, um, I should sort of unpack the, the model itself. So this was a model that consisted of layers. So an artificial neural network is a computer system that consists of simple neurons, Uh, that are organized into layers. Uh, At the bottom of the network, you have what's called the input layer. Uh, Just above the input layer, you have the hidden layer, and just above that, you have the output layer. And the job of these networks is quite simple. If you give it a certain kind of input, it has to produce a desired output. The way it does that is it changes its weights. So again, I told you that these layers are connected to each other via these associative weights. And so the way it solves this task is by finding the right configuration of weights in order for it to solve the task. And so what I did is I basically built a simulation version of what the baby saw in the Kylie Hamlin study in 07, in the Kylie Hamlin study in 2011. And what I show is that these models can actually uh, give rise to the pattern of performance that babies uh, sort of showed. So just like the kids, just like the infants, these models preferred I'm air quoting here these models mm-hmm. preferred the helpers over the hinderers and so what's in, the reason this is important is because these models know nothing about morality mm-hmm. these models are op, not ha, they're just completely agnostic to that all they have available to them are these low level perceptual features and these statistical regularities mm-hmm. but yet just given these statistical regularities these networks these models were able to uh, basically, uh, simulate uh, the infant behavior, uh, and so this sort of uh, makes me wonder whether or not one should even invoke sort of an innate moral core or these sort of domain-specific mechanisms that operate in particular content domains. Right? So that's that's the, the the long and short of it.
0: Mhm. So you mentioned that you found that the simula- in the simulation the network prefers. I'm also air quoting here um, yep. prefer the helper over the hinder. Yeah. Like I I'm just like having to
1: operationalize that. Uh
0: uh-huh. yeah, how did you operationalize that preference in yeah. like a lifeless neural network? Right.
1: <laughs> that's a that's a fantastic question. Yeah, so unlike babies who can look or older babies who can reach reach and look These are models. These are are, uh, fundamentally inanimate objects, right? They're dynamical systems, sure, but they're inanimate objects. And so how did I operationalize or or measure preference? Well, it turns out that in these kinds of models, we use error, like actual sum squared error, as a measure of what the network knows. So the idea is that if the network knows something really well, well, when you present that to the network, the error is going to be lower than if it knows something less well. And so the idea is that when I presented the helper, the character, the pattern of activation that I took to represent the helper to the network, the network showed less error in response to that than in response to the helper. And so I interpreted this lower error as a measure of preference. And in particular, I said that the network had a preference for helper over the hinderer because it, when I presented it with a helper, it showed lower error than when I presented it with uh, a hinderer. I will say that this measure uh, isn't something I made up. So other developmentalists who who apply computational models, connectionist models in their own work also use uh, um, uh, error as a measure of looking or as a measure of knowledge. Uh, And this to some extent makes a lot of sense, right? So what the network is doing as it learns is building this sort of internal representation Represented by the hidden layer. The hidden layer is sort of squashed between the input and the output layer. So the network is building a representation based on the statistics, right? And so if the network sees in this context uh, agents engaging in concordant action, even if those agents look different, the network is going to build a similar internal representation. So those agents and those events are going to become, are going to be represented in the same sort of way. And so when I show a new instance, of an agent that engages in helping, well, then the representation that it produces is more or less identical to everything it's seen. Mm-hmm. So therefore the network has no difficult, has no problem assimilating that new instance into its in, into its existing knowledge, thereby producing lower error. However, because the network has seen uh, many fewer instances of agents engaging in uh, oppositional action, that event some, is somewhat surprising because they haven't they haven't experienced enough of it, mm-hmm. right? And so uh, when you present a helper, the the internal representation that it produces is going to be at odds more or less with the internal representation it would have formed for helping like events. Um, and so it's on this basis that the networks preferred, preferred that it's produced lower error in response to a helper uh, as opposed to uh, when the network was presented with a hinderer. That's the idea.
0: I see. So if I understand correctly, um, I guess. Would 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 you think that it's correct to say that by building up this computational model of showing a similar phenomenon, it's kind of showing that there is in principle a possibility which that the babies are learning through this kind of lower perceptual features. But then I guess there's left this kind of almost like mysterious question: if babies do not come with this like innate moral core, if whatever we are finding in the early infancies are based on just perceptual low-level features. Where does morality come from there? Yep,
1: you are spot on. And so this is actually, I don't know if I make this point in the paper. I may make the point in the paper. Uh, but of course, so I've explained a way to explain the findings in Kylie. But you and I, as adults, we definitely can distinguish between moral actions and immoral actions. If I turn around and whack someone in the face, you and I know <laughs> I don't have to see regularities. We know that that's bad. That's immoral right? Just like if I donate to charity, that's a moral action. Or if I save someone from an oncoming train, that's a moral action. So clearly morality does emerge, even if I argue in this particular paper that what the babies are doing is not sort of showing morality per se. So where does it come from? How does it come to emerge? Well, this is a complicated question, no doubt. Uh, And this is going to take some more thinking, but I have some ideas. So one sort of possibility is that uh, what as the infants start to learn language, as they start to produce language and comprehend language, they start to hear terms that are negatively or positively valenced. And those terms are associated with certain kinds of events, right? So if I see two things, butting heads or, or fighting, for example, mm-hmm. I'm not going to use positive terms. I'm going to say, oh, look at that. That's so great. Like they're, <laughs> they're butting heads and they're fighting. I'm going to say, that's bad. No, 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 you don't do that, mm-hmm. right? So those actions become linked with Uh negatively valence terms. And it's on this basis, I think, that they start to have this burgeoning sense of morality. It's only when, on my account, they start to not only comprehend language, because we know comprehension happens early, Mm -hmm. but when they start producing language, uh, that they learn these contingencies. So they already have the store of associations. Like that's something that they come to task with. But what's added is the link between these associations that they have. And these moral, these morally um valence terms, like bad or naughty, or good and helpful, right? That's how I think it happens. Now, of course, we can talk about the details a little bit further, but I think that um roughly is what, what's happening. And so this model doesn't touch that because it's a separate question. The whole point of this model was to 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 show that a simple associative system can account for what has been taken as evidence of morality but mm-hmm. i don't think it's evidence of morality that's the idea but that's a fantastic question actually
0: yeah uh if you don't mind i do want to revisit the like the the, the thought that you just shared on language as being a precursor to morality this is your area
1: i know this is now <laughs> now <laughs> i'm entering into a to 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 sort of unfamiliar territory so you are the expert here
0: no i'm just like really fascinated by this account i wonder if you can say more about um, it is like you, I, I think I heard you say that it is not when the production uh, the comprehension is not enough to support moral understanding. But it is when the well, I don't the
1: actually process. know. Honestly, mm-hmm. I'm a bit agnostic on that, whether or not you need one or both. I think the point is it's once they start comprehending. A term as being negatively balanced. In addition to having this mechanism that links that term with the existing associations. That they start to have a sense of morality. I don't know if production is necessary. It may not even be necessary, right? That this is an mm-hmm. empirical question. But I think the more important point is that um, it's when babies can understand terms as having different valences, in addition to being able to form these associations, that they can be said to it be sort of in the beginning phases of understanding morality, right? Uh, and so that's that's the account, uh, and 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 I I believe, like I said, I believe I touched on it a little bit in the actual paper. But again, that wasn't the main point of the paper, so I didn't explore that too too uh, too deeply.
0: I see. Yeah. Okay. That that was great to hear your perspective on this, like the origins of morality from an <laughs> associative perspective. Yeah. So now. Yeah,
1: I, I just feel like we always hear about like this is a cool finding. Uh, and we always hear that one perspective, but I think there's definitely an alternative account um, and and whether it turns out to be right, I don't know. Uh, and in fact, a limitation of the paper is that I don't present any data, mm-hmm. right? So it would be nice to um, you know see if actual behavior comports with the predictions of the model. I don't have that but that's only because of the pandemic.
0: I mean, oh, yeah. uh, I haven't difficult. been able to collect
1: data, right? Um, so I would, I do have at some point um, the the intention to test um, some of the predictions. So this paper we're talking about, I actually don't present any predictions, but um, in a fuller length paper that I'm working on currently, uh, my model does make some kind of predictions. Um, and I'm happy to talk about that if you like, but anyway, I'll stop there for now.
0: Yeah, so. I guess, since we talk about like the one limitation of this computational modeling is that it doesn't have any data, but I also I'm wondering it's kind of difficult for me to think about like what kind of experiment will provide like a kind of like a, a evidence to dissociate these two type of interpretation because I think one challenge in infant research is that our measurement, our available measurement is so sparse and we almost like, there are a lot of cases where people are kind of phasing the same data and just like adding interpretation differently. So I wonder if you have any thoughts on what could be like a convincing.
1: How do these, like in what way can these two accounts be distinguished? Well, so uh, one prediction that uh, this model makes is that, and and I show this in a longer paper, is that babies should take much longer to habituate to the hindering event than to the helping. Now, notice in the actual experiments on which this model is based, babies are habituated to both events at the same time. They just alternate. So in some trials, they see helping. In some trials, they see hindering. It's never been the case that babies are habituated only to helping or only to hindering. They're always shown both. Mm -hmm. Yet my account makes a certain kind of prediction, which is that babies should habituate, take longer to habi- reach, reach the habituation criterion if they are habituated to hindering than to helping. Why? Well, it's because in the real world, they see far fewer instances of agents opposing each other than they see of, instance, than they see of agents um, uh, facilitating the actions of each other, right? And so that's a clear prediction. It's not clear why, uh, how the innate moral core account would make that prediction. The argument is that from birth, we have this capacity to distinguish between helping and hindering. Right there, should there is nothing about the two events that should make one easier to to process than the other. So that's a clear uh, 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 competing prediction that the two accounts make. Uh, another prediction that uh, my account makes, which is really interesting, is that if you change the the statistics, then you should also change the infant's preferences. On my account, so for example if they see an equal number of consistent action events where two things are moving together, for example, or two things are helping each other, if they see an equal number of those events, two events where two things are opposing each other, then they should actually be at chance Hmm. in their preferences, right? But if they see, let's say, uh, uh, more instances of things opposing each other than helping each other, they should actually prefer the hinderer. Kylie, or uh, the innate moral core account wouldn't make that prediction. Right. It shouldn't matter. The statistics are irrelevant because we're born with this mechanism and this mechanism is supposed to be evolutionarily ancient. And in fact, the point of this mechanism, uh, the reason we have this mechanism, according to these to these uh, to proponents of it, is that it facilitates cooperation with mm-hmm. with uh with social group members. Right. And it's sort of independent of these statistics. Well, my account is fundamentally tethered to the statistics of the real world. And so if, in fact, they have this associative mechanism that's that's operating on these statistics. Well, if you change those statistics, you should change the associations that are formed and therefore the preferences that the models and by extension, the infants show. That's the idea.
0: I see. So just to kind of a paraphrase what you just say, one possibility sure. is to show babies the kind of like, it's they're slower to habituate to something that they haven't seen before. And the others, they've seen less
1: of, I'm not arguing that they've never seen that because I think it seems quite self-evident that they do see uh, instances of oppositional action, but I just think it's far fewer. I see. Yeah.
0: And the other other possibility is to kind of alter the statistics in, the, in a test. So I guess since we brought up this kind of influence of what infants have uh, in their first first months of their life. I wonder if you know if there's any like literature on um, to look at what exactly are infants seeing in the first months of their life because...
1: So um, I don't know if there's any data uh, uh, that examines what kind of moral actions babies see, but there's certainly data um, on the kinds of actions that babies see that agents engage in. So your own advisor, your undergrad advisor, David Rakison, has a paper with Jessica Cicchino, uh, where and uh, Dick Aslan, where they put head-mounted cameras on babies as the babies are crawling around. And what the experimenters did is they basically analyzed what kinds of events the babies see. And it turns out that babies see, whenever they see an agent, people, people are, are more, so when the babies see those events, they see more instances of uh, contact of actions, so like where one agent is doing something to some someone else through contact, so picking up a cup, pushing another person, opening a refrigerator. So there's contact there. They see more instances of this than instances where agents engage in self-propelled motion. So there, there's clearly some data that uh, look at the statistics. But you're absolutely right to. Uh, I think you're you're, you're you're getting at something that I would like to do in some future study, which is, okay, I'm talking about these statistics, but how do we know that the kind of stis- the, the distribution that I'm referring to is in fact the distribution that babies see in the real world, right? And so it would be nice in some future study in collaboration with someone who actually does head-mounted camera stuff to really explore the kind of morality events, morality-laden events that babies see. Yeah.
0: Another thought that I had is that since I think in the very original study, Hamlin said, Oh, they're testing on three months old. And three months old, I feel like they're probably like not very good at any type of motor skills. And yep. I wonder, like, when they are kind of lying on their cribs doing their own thing, they're probably just seeing like faces kind of coming and go. So i can I guess it will be interesting to see if there are certain type of movement in their visual experience at that early age that can kind of approximate what might later become this kind of engagement between agent and patient
1: absolutely, absolutely that definitely on my radar and something I've certainly thought about because you're absolutely right. I'm talking about statistics, but it would be nice to know what the actual statistics statistics are like what do they what it what are infants actually exposed to in the real world right. And do those, do the, um, you know, do those statistics map onto the behavior, as I'm saying they do, because of this mechanism that uh, takes in these statistics and that produce certain links and, and associations.
0: Yeah, that would be cool study to follow. Absolutely.
1: Up, huh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is I will say uh, for the listener that this is actually new work for me. So Angie knows me from. Well, first and foremost, we worked in the same lab, she was an undergrad, I was a PhD student, but she also knows me mainly from my work on causal learning. So, you know, when I was at CMU, you know, for my entire time there, I focused on causal learning. And, I, and that still is my primary area of, of of interest and expertise. But I'm now venturing into new areas, and 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 this social moral reasoning stuff is something that's sort of piqued my interest. And sort of as a fun fact, the reason I even built this model and wrote this paper is because I did a it, it, sort of this 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 paper and this model derived from my own podcast where we were talking about the Kylie Hamden paper. And sort of as I prepare for that 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 particular episode, I just happened to be thinking about uh what really is happening and and I was sort of puzzled by this interpretation that babies have this a name role core, because to me it was quite obvious that there is clearly an alternative explanation and so um you know I think that were it not for the podcast I may not have written this paper (laughs) and I may not be in this area so it's kind of interesting it's sort of a fortuitous thing um
0: uh, yeah yeah now I wonder if you can say more about Why do you think computational modeling is extremely valuable to understanding socio-cognitive development? Or anything, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, I think that, so yes, I do identify as a computational modeler and a developmental psychologist, but I often do say I'm a computational modeler because I apply models to pretty much everything I do. And so, you know, this begs the question, why model? especially given that, you know, modeling isn't something that all psychologists do. And in fact, there is a, an appreciable size of psychologists who view models as black boxes. And that's why they don't model sort of like, we don't know what they're doing. So why would I use that model? Why would I build computational models? But I think that computational modeling has much to offer to psychological research, right? So first and foremost, modeling forces, Uh, In a way that verbal theories don't, they force the theorist and the researcher to be explicit about their assumptions uh, of their theories, to be explicit about the mechanisms of change. Uh, And so they, they, again, they force you to be uh, um, specific and precise. Mm -hmm. Uh, Moreover, they, and for me, this is really where the power of computational modeling comes, is they make predictions, uh, so you build a computational model, in this case, a simulation of some uh, well-known study uh, to ask whether or not the model can fit the data. Well, that's fine. Any good model will likely fit the data. But that's often not what uh, a computational modeler is interested in. That's usually the starting point, but that's definitely not what where we are trying to go. Uh, really, what you want to show is that the model can explain data that it hasn't seen Uh And and so the way it does is it makes predictions, right? And so my models are no different. So I I build models that try to simulate existing data, but I also ask myself, okay, what happens if I expose the model to a different context? What does it do? Well, whatever it does uh, serves as the basis, serves as a prediction. And then I go out and test test the data. I test infants or kids, and I see if their performance aligns with the predictions. If, in fact, the performance does align with the prediction, then I have some reason to think that perhaps this is the mechanism. It serves at least as, as an existence proof that this could be the mechanism. And I will say that um, models uh, are only sufficiency accounts, right? They show that a particular formalism is sufficient to explain behavior, but isn't, it doesn't show us that it's necessary. Mm-hmm. And that's the best we can do. We can show that these models are sufficient. But yeah, so modeling is useful because they it forces whatever formalism you use, whether it be Bayesian models uh, or whether it be neural networks, uh, they force the theorist and the research to be explicit about those assumptions that they have in their theory. Um, and sometimes models make counterintuitive, they may, may behave counterintuitively in ways that you wouldn't have predicted especially the kind of models I build because these are dynamical systems that can't be precisely predicted, especially as the model itself grows, that is, as you have more weights and more, neuro, more uh, processing units, right? And so these sort of counterintuitive um, uh, predictions or counterintuitive patterns of behavior can also help you to refine your theory in a way that sort of just sitting there armchair philosophizing wouldn't allow you to do. Exactly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, that's to me, the why I think people should be modeling. Mm -hmm. Um, and why I, why, um, I model myself.
0: What have been the most like surprising or unpredicted, uh, finding you have from building up model?
1: Yeah. So, um, let's see. Oh, so, uh, I, David Rackson was my uh, PhD advisor. He was uh, Angie's undergraduate advisor at Carnegie Mellon. Um, And so David did a study that looked at this phenomenon called second-order correlation learning. Uh, Second-order correlation learning sort of goes like this. So let's say on one trial, I show you that A goes with B. And then on another trial, I show you that A goes with C. The question is, On the basis of these two associations, can you infer the relationship between B and C? So A went with B, A went with C, but B and C never went together, although they're associated via these two separate associations. And so he tested whether or not babies can do this um, uh, uh, in a context in which they had to learn the relationship between the internal feature of an object and its motion path. And so in the study, he tested 20 and 26 month olds. And what he found, quite curiously, is that the 20, 20-month-olds um, look longer. They detect the second-order correlation, whereas the 26-month-olds showed a completely different pattern of looking. And this is, this is, this is surprising because you would have expected that 26-month-olds, because they're older, they would be better at detecting they should the second-order do better. not the 20-month-olds. <laughs> right. That's what you might predict. Well, this is also what the model showed. And so, in fact, this is actually where modeling was useful. So we thought this might have been a fluke because this was so counterintuitive to us, this finding, like, why would the 26-month-olds or the 20-month-olds be showing a pattern of of looking that the 26-month-olds should have been showing, given what we know about, um, you know, the factors that drive looking uh, from Hunter and Ames's work and and, and Cohen's work and and, uh, Robert, you know, Robert Fance's work, like, what explains that? And so we thought it was a fluke. So I said, you know what, let's build a model. Uh, If the model makes the same prediction, well, clearly there's something going on there. If the model, you know, does the same thing, there's clearly something going on there. Well, lo and behold, the model did the same thing. So the older models didn't show the second order correlation uh, learning, but the younger models did. Moreover, the model provided a mechanistic explanation. It turns out, I'm sure you've heard of less is more, Uh, Eliza Newport uh, talks about less is more um, uh, when it comes to learning language. Right. Uh, So the reason why young infants uh, can distinguish between phonemes in different languages is because they have uh, impoverished information processing ability. So it seems like this this otherwise limit this 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 thing that you would otherwise perceive as a limitation facilitates language learning on the one hand. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so less is more. Whereas with adults, we have more information processing abilities, blah, blah, blah. uh, And that serves as a sort of it it inhibits our ability to learn language. Well, maybe that was what was going on. And that was what the model suggested. So the the lesser information processing capacity of the younger networks allowed them to detect the relevant association and to ignore noise. So for the older models, the older models, because they had just more uh, uh, memory capacity, they just learned everything, even the noise. And by learning everything, they uh, sort of their attention was turned away from the second-order correlation in a way that wasn't true. And so the model not only backed up this uh, uh, paradoxical finding, but it provided a mechanism. That is, the older models have more information processing abilities, allow them to focus on other things, and this drives their attention away from, not towards, the second-order correlation in the way that the younger networks didn't.
0: Well, that's fascinating. It's almost like as the kids get older and they're like, they can do more and they're taking it all in and they kind of lost the focus.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely. So so this is another way in which the model was useful. It was able not only to model to fit some counterintuitive data, but to provide a mechanistic explanation of, well, why might this counterintuitive data come to be in the first place? That's the idea.
0: It is truly fascinating. So I think we're about the time and thank you so much for sharing your work with us and it's just like so fascinating to hear you talk about your own work and <laughs> look forward to more, especially on the like the realistic like video statistic thing in the early infancy stuff.
1: Oh, absolutely. I'll be sure to tip you off when when, when, and if I get to that ever. All right, Angie, um, it's been great. Um, yeah, thank you. And, and good luck with the rest of the podcast. And uh, yeah, thank you again.